0: Hi, I'm Dr. Lucas Engelhardt, and this is Ask an Austrian. So I have a handful of questions here. I'll I'll just go through and answer a few of them. Uh, So if you sent one in and I don't get to it, certainly feel free to send it again, right? Maybe we'll get to it in a later episode. All right, so uh, first up from Jason Kelly. What is the best introductory book for the layman who wants to learn the basics of Austrian economics but doesn't necessarily want to become an expert or read something as extensive as *Human Action* or *Man, Economy, and State*. All right. So, first, I don't know why people wouldn't want to read something like *Human Actions*. Yeah, right there, it's not that intimidating. I think it's only nine hundred and sixty pages, or something like that. Or *Man, Economy, and State*. I actually have an old edition. You can see it's it's fairly small. It's not, not that big a book. Oh. <laughs> Uh, another 960 pages, but certainly yeah, these can be somewhat intimidating and uh, also in terms of their content, they're not necessarily beginner friendly, right? So where's a better place to start? Uh, so I have a few recommendations that I might possibly make. One, would be economics and lesson. It's hard to go wrong with Hazlitt. Uh, this is very good for people that are not that familiar with economics at all. It's a very good place to start. Uh, And the amazing thing to me about this book is that it was written shortly after World War II, let's see, uh, the original copyright 1946. Despite that, uh, a lot of the debates he gets into are still going on today. You listen to the presidential debates, for example, and we're still talking about the same issues that Hazlitt is talking about in 1946. So here we are. Almost 75 years later, and doesn't feel we've made a whole lot of progress as far as that goes. These issues just keep coming up again and again. Now, one thing about Hazlitt is that this book is, I would say, somewhat lighter on the theoretical side, uh, but... Definitely very much speaks to the political issues, the policy issues, which is what I think normal people would actually need to know. Things like talking about the minimum wage or profit taxes, these kinds of things, where we actually have to make decisions about who we're going to vote for. Economics in one lesson, very good option as far as that goes. Uh, A couple other options. Uh, Here I have another one, right? This one's um, Gene Callahan's Economics for Real People. It says it's an introduction to the Austrian school. Uh, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I got this one from the Mises Institute. It's it's not that intimidating, it's 300 pages, something like that. And it goes into kind of the history of Austrian economics. I think it is more explicitly Austrian and more specifically Austrian than economics in one lesson is. and also it gets a little bit more into uh, kind of the theoretical aspect of it so if you really want to know the economics side of it rather than just the policy side uh, i think that economics for real people is a, a very good choice uh, another option right there would be choice right uh, by robert murphy this is a relatively newer book uh this one uh what murphy did he went through Uh, human action and really tried to distill it down into a much easier to understand form uh, that people who are less initiated right into economics or Austrian economics specifically would be able to understand fairly well and I think he did an an excellent job with that so I would recommend right all three of those books uh, economics in one lesson economics for real people and choice these are all great options Uh, one last book that I should mention is Thomas Taylor's An Introduction to Austrian Economics. It's a very short book, I want to say it's 100 pages or so. You can easily find this on Mises.org. That one, uh, I would say if you're going to read that one, it's best for somebody that has a little bit of background in kind of a mainstream economic view. You don't have to have your degree or anything in it, but you have to be familiar with those concepts because he's mostly trying to introduce what Austrian economics is to those who are somewhat familiar with economics, but not necessarily Austrian economics. So that, that I think would be also be another fairly good option, though I don't have one on hand right here. All right, so those four books. Economics and One lesson for the total beginner. Economics for real people, also good for a total beginner, but wants more of the theory side than the policy side. Uh, choice, also good for somebody who's relatively early on and maybe doesn't want to read human action. It's, it's very lengthy and you need some background. Choice is a good option there. And then finally... Uh, introduction to Austrian economics for somebody who knows some economics but really wants to get into the Austrian school. Okay, uh, next up then, uh, Henry Rodriguez says, in the absence of a federal reserve, would prices ever go up? In other words, would the cost of living increase? And that—that and that is good to distinguish that. He's, The first question, of course, some prices might go up, but would we expect to see a general increase in prices, that is where your average cost of living might rise? Uh, Here we can actually look back historically and say, well, what happened when we didn't have the Federal Reserve to start with? So go back before the Federal Reserve and let's even look at times, say, when we're following the gold standard fairly closely. Uh, generally, what would happen there is that you would sometimes see periods of time where there were significant increases in prices. Uh, normally, this would happen if there was some kind of big discovery of gold and there's a gold rush. Right? So as is true any time with, with any good, supply and demand. Right? If supply increases, then the value of the good is going to fall. Right? If we're using gold as money right, and the supply of gold suddenly increases, the value of gold is going to fall. And the way that looks when you're using gold as money is that everything takes more gold to buy or prices go up on average. Now, that said, we would not expect this to be a continuous thing. Uh, rather, we would expect just these occasional, right, one time increases in the price level. And that is what we saw historically. Uh, if you look kind of over the longer trend, uh, we didn't see a whole lot of movement in the average level of prices based on the data we have for something like a 250-year period prior to the Federal Reserve coming into existence, instead right, we would have kind of these one-time increases but then gradual declines in the price level. Uh, the reason there being is that typically it's kind of hard for us to increase the supply of gold, uh, but not so hard to increase the supply of other goods. So other goods are finding their prices falling gradually, while we only have so much gold to buy them. Uh, But we'd see that interrupted with these gold discoveries. We'd also see interruptions, say, in wartime or things like this, whenever the government would abandon the gold standard temporarily. We'd see this huge spike in prices as they start printing, literally printing up a bunch of money to fund wars, like the Civil War is one example. Uh, But then prices would come right back down. So if you look at kind of the average level of prices based on the data um, that I saw. I think it's Hughes and Kane They have a Economic History of the United States textbook. Look at 1650, look at 1910. It's almost exactly the same price level based on the statistics that they present. So we don't see this general increase in prices. But one-off, you may occasionally get. Okay. Right. Uh, from Sean Spacek. Am I wrong for saying the U.S. dollar does not have a unit of account? Since the U.S. dollar is a unit of debt and debt has no standard measurement, uh, how can I logically compare prices then? Uh, Well, here I think we want to get into uh, what are the functions uh, that money has more generally. I typically would say that money is a matter of functions for a medium, a measure, a standard, a store is what they say. I learned that from Dr. David Howden. That, that rhyme, right? So let's go through each one. Right? So, medium. So, money is a medium of exchange. That is to say, right? When I sell whatever I sell, I don't sell it directly for the thing that I actually want. I instead, sell it for money. So, in my case, right, when I do work for the university, uh, they pay my salary to me in dollars because I'm an American and I use U.S. dollars. Right? Then I take that those dollars, that money, and then I use it for the things that I want. Right, so it's the medium of exchange, right? I sell for the medium of exchange, then I use the medium of exchange to get what I want. Okay, so obviously the U.S. dollar does this. Uh, so medium, measure. Now here, I think measure is not actually quite the right word. Instead, unit of account is really the, the better uh, term here. So unit of account. So what exactly is a unit of account? And here we can get to the actual question of, are you wrong for saying the U.S. dollar doesn't have a unit of account? So all I really mean, unit of account, is that it's the unit uh, that we keep accounts in, right? So when we are, say, adding up income or expenses, when we're adding up assets, liabilities, and so on, right? All of these are listed in, say, U.S. dollars in the U.S. or if you're in the eurozone in the euro or what have you, and whatever your monetary unit happens to be. this is one of the functions that money does take on, although I wouldn't consider it to be kind of the essential function of money, but it's nonetheless an important one. Right, so does the U.S. dollar then have a unit account of account? There, I would say that's it's not quite the right um, terminology. I would say the U.S. dollar does serve as a, a unit of account. That is to say, if I pull out, um, say, my own personal financial records, everything in there is in dollars. Right, all of my my incomes, my income, my expenses, my credit card, all of these are denominated in dollars, and I keep track of these things in dollars. So. The US dollar does actually serve as a unit of account. Now, when you say it's a unit of debt, uh, there it's not entirely clear what you mean. Um, and debts would also be accounts right? that we would keep track of right, in dollars as well. So these two are not uh, ex- like one exclusive of the other. Uh, it can be the unit in which you state debts. It could be also the unit used for other accounts. There's no problem with that. Right, so then, uh, logically, how do you compare prices? Well. That's exactly it, because the dollar is used as a unit of account. Prices are also stated in dollars. I do want to mention these other two uh, functions of money that we discussed. That is the standard of deferred payment. Uh, standard of deferred payment is really, in my mind, it's it's a specific unit of account uh, when you're talking about debt in particular, right? So, and not just like, the unit of account, but medium of exchange applied to that as well, right? So that is whenever I take on debt, right, that is I owe somebody money, I'm deferring the payment of something, right? The standard is, right, that I will pay them back, right, in dollars whatever the money happens to be. Right? So standard of deferred payment is really just kind of this combination of unit of account applied to debt and also the medium of exchange applied to debt. That is you repay your debts and keep track of debts and money. Uh, Then finally, a store, a store of value, that is that we can hold money over time, and it doesn't hold its value perfectly, we know, uh, but it does hold its value reasonably well right, from one time period to the next time period, though naturally there are some exceptions to this, but tends not to lose all of its value. I would note that certainly in store of value, Money is not unique in this. There are lots of things that are stores of value. My house is a store of value. Certainly my retirement account, which is mostly in stocks and bonds, this is also a store of value, right? So it's not really unique there. I would say of these functions, the one that is most essential to money is that is a medium of exchange. That is what makes it right, money is that we use it for that. Okay. All right, so are you wrong in saying the US dollar does not have a unit of account? I would So in some sense, yes, Uh, but to say more precisely, the U.S. dollar does serve as a unit of account. Uh, Moving on down, keeping things related to money, I suppose. Uh, Why, from James DeCubilis, why is the petrodollar so important to the United States? And if other nations move away from the dollar in global trade, will there be an inflationary impact in the USA? Okay, that is it great question so why is the petrodollar so important to the us right so here we can think of money like we can with pretty much any other good right supply and demand So there are a certain number of dollars out there in existence. Some of those are in the United States. Some of them are in other countries. We know there are countries like Ecuador. Uh, Ecuador has dollarized. So they actually use the U.S. dollar on a regular basis in their own economy. And then we also have certain markets where the dollar is typically what is used as a medium of exchange. And here's where the petrodollar would come in. We know the oil markets typically are the dollars what's used if you're going to be buying and selling oil. So why is that so important? Well, get back to supply and demand. We know there are so many dollars out there, we know there's a demand for dollars. Now, the reason you would hold dollars is because you expect to spend these dollars in some fashion. Or possibly because you're speculating that the dollar is going to gain value over time versus other currencies, perhaps. But really focus on that that use idea. You hold it because you expect to use it at some point in the future. You're not 100% sure when, so you don't want to make a longer-term investment, so you just hold cash. Now, this makes sense if you're in, say, the United States or or a dollarized economy. On a regular basis, you're spending dollars, so you need to have those dollars available to spend. It also makes sense if you're trading in oil markets where you're regularly having to go out and and buy oil, then you might want to have some dollar reserves available. So then what happens if people decide to stop using the U.S. dollar and trade? Well, it's part of the demand for the U.S. dollar would immediately dry up less demand, right? then things going to lose value. So we would expect to see the U.S. dollar would lose value. We should see a general increase in prices as stated in dollars, which those economies that continue to use dollars, the United States and dollarized economies, would experience this one-time increase in prices. Now, would this lead to kind of a continuous inflationary impact on the United States? I suspect the answer is no, uh, simply because it would be a one-time switch. Right? We're flipping from lots of people using dollars to fewer using dollars. Right? So it's a one-time decrease in demand. I wouldn't expect this to lead to a continuous decreasing of demand. Although I suppose that might be possible if, for example, uh, some of the dollarized economies are dollarized because they're involved with oil markets. They might switch to another currency. Right? So we could set off this kind of domino effect. Uh, but I don't see that would necessarily logically be the case. Right? So a one-time increase in prices is very likely. Anything more than that, Uh, I think is more unlikely. Although I do think there would be a certain amount of adjustment that we'd have to go through as we're used to creating a certain number of dollars and having it not have a big price impact here inside the United States since so many of these dollars leave the U.S. Uh, So we would need to adjust for the fact there isn't as much international demand for the dollar as we are creating additional dollars in our own country. But I don't see that as being something that... um, would be a continuous issue that would come up. Okay. Uh, so then I think we have time for one last one. Right, so from Noah Michael, what is the Austrian business cycle theory and what would the Mises caucus advocate for given an understanding of Austrian business cycle theory? So I'm going to be extremely brief. Uh, If you want to find more about the Austrian business cycle theory, I could recommend head out to YouTube look for uh, Mises University lectures on the Austrian business cycle theory. There are great explanations out there. Uh, Also, uh, if you wanted a somewhat more advanced book, there is a a relatively short book. It's a collection of essays. Uh, The Austrian theory of the trade cycle is available. But to boil it way, way down, what is the Austrian business cycle theory? The Austrian business cycle theory, what it does, it describes, right, how credit expansion either, right, by a central bank like the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank, uh, or, right, by fractional reserve banks, right, deciding to hold less reserves than they had previously. These can cause credit expansions, right. These credit expansions then lead to, right, booms that inevitably must bust, right, as, they're, as they involve various errors right, that entrepreneurs make. Errors get revealed find out we're not going to be as profitable as we thought, we close up shop. So in very, very brief, that's what Austrian business cycle theory is all about. Now, why is it useful to people that might be doing some kind of political advocacy? So here are are my thoughts on that. One is that Austrian business cycle theory allows us to identify the ultimate cause of where the business cycle comes from. And that's that, that I think is something that's very useful because common people... Do not like business cycles. Ask average people. Right, do you like that the economy goes through booms and busts? Well, no, we don't. We kind of like to see steady growth over time. We don't want to see suddenly it's very easy to find a job, then it's extremely hard to find a job. We, we don't like right, that kind of volatility in our lives. Right, so we don't like it. So we want to blame this on somebody. And often what happens right, is that we blame the wrong people. Right, we blame the people that are out there. The ones that are making the mistakes kind of on the ground level right? also the problem is that we had all these people getting greedy and buying houses that they couldn't afford. Of course, they could afford the house, right, when interest rates were low enough. It's just when things corrected on the monetary side, right, interest rates went back up and now they could no longer afford their house. Right? So it wasn't ultimately the fault of the people that were, that were buying the houses, but they played a role. Right. but they were responding to the incentives being created, right, by the banking system and in particular the Federal Reserve, right. right, so by allowing us to trace back exactly who is responsible, right, for this volatility we experience in the economy, that's a very useful thing within when we then start advocating policy. So we might say we want to do things like um, auditing the Fed would be a simple first step, right, to that really makes people aware of what the Federal Reserve is doing, and also the role that it plays right, in the economy. Get people thinking about this institution. I, of course, ultimately might start advocating for things like uh, ending the Federal Reserve entirely. I mean, Ron Paul has the book, right End of the Fed. I actually have a copy sitting on my shelf. Right? So this would be something you might want to advocate for. Another thing that might want to advocate for is uh, recognizing right, that when we have competition, right errors, by any one decision-maker are not quite as important. So advocating for additional competition in currency, right? So allow Americans to use dollars if they want, but also try to make it easier and not restrict them using things like Bitcoin, or if they want to use things like euros or Canadian dollars or what have you, open up that market to competition, then that will reduce the effect of any single player, Right? something like the way the dollar is being managed. So these would be things that we could sensibly advocate for, given having an understanding of Austrian business cycle theory. And I, I do think another, I would do want to emphasize that another great impact of this is that it allows us to blame the right people, right? So when people say, oh, it's, it's all these you know, greedy businesses that just you know overextended themselves, right? they got too greedy, you hear that phrase a lot, and then they ended up making mistakes, right? And now they're falling apart. Oh, it's these evil businesses we need to control. We say, wait, 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 no, no, that's that's not what it was. The problem isn't that we had these businesses that weren't regulated enough. They were responding to the incentives that were being created right, by our banking system, which is heavily regulated and overseen largely by the Federal Reserve. Once we can redirect right, the blame to where it does actually belong, right, then we can start having more useful policy conversations. So I think that Um, some knowledge of the Austrian business cycle theory and integrating that uh, into the policies we advocated will be a very useful thing. Thanks.